Well, once again, as we close this Lord's Day together, we have the opportunity, the privilege to sit under God's Word and to hear what it says to us. Please turn in your Bibles or on your phones to Mark chapter 12. I was thinking as I um, was getting ready to step up here, it seems like we've been in uh, the middle of Mark for a long time, um, and I guess we have in a way, and we keep seeing these interactions between Christ and the Jewish leaders. Um, and there's actually six of them, as, as I've mentioned as we've gone along, and each, each interaction and each exchange and controversy has a little different flavor. Um, and that's certainly true with our text this evening. Last time, we spoke about how the Pharisees and the Herodians came, these uh, two groups that were unlikely allies uh, they came together to try to trap Jesus, and they posed a question to him about taxes. And Jesus wisely answered their question, and then he went for their hearts, exposing them for the hypocrites that they were, and helping them and us see what it, more what it means to follow him. Tonight in our text, we see another question posed to our Lord, this time from the Sadducees, about the resurrection. As we said, there's six of these controversies. This is the fourth in that series. And um, all of this is really leading up to his betrayal, his, his trial, his crucifixion, and of course his resurrection. We see in this passage the authority of Christ coming through once again loud and clear. And we see that his, his knowledge and his authority is displayed in his superior knowledge of the Scripture and that he knows a full, he has a full understanding of, of what he is handling. The Sadducees were the elite priests, if you will, of that day. They came to humiliate Jesus, but instead Jesus once again exposed their hearts. And I pray that God, through his spirit and through his word, would expose our hearts to us this evening. We want to read this text, but before we do, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you and we thank you for your word. And truly it is a gift, but yet, Lord, it is what we need. And often it, it cuts into our heart and that's what we want it to do tonight. And often it exposes things that, that we're not proud of and ways in which we have failed to conform to you and to your standard and to your word. So, Lord, would you do that once again? Through your word and by your spirit, would you work in us tonight? Lord, and may the words of, of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and he died. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. 
Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. I want us to consider this text under two very simple divisions, the question from the Sadducees and the response from our Lord. And as we've seen in these various controversies, these various interchanges with the Jewish leaders, there's a lot going on. And just as there was an agenda driving the Pharisees and the Herodians the last time when they posed this question about paying taxes to Caesar and whether that was lawful or not, there is an agenda once again behind what the Sadducees are asking about the resurrection. Now, we want to learn more about that and we want to consider their intent. But before we do that, I want us to think about the background, both of the Sadducees as a group and of the question and what was behind it. The origin of the Sadducees is somewhat uncertain. Tyndall's Bible Dictionary says rather unhelpfully that, the, that their sources that they use to write their uh, short entry about that are all hostile and inadequate for an accurate picture. That's not too encouraging when you go to study something. But we know that they were leaders in uh, Judaism. They dominated, at least at the time of Christ, they dominated the Sanhedrin, which was the, the, the ruling court, if you will, the ruling council of Judaism. And they were the main competitors to the Pharisees. Sometimes um, in, um, in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus spoke against them. And you often see the Lord Jesus saying, Woe to you, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. And he, he speaks against them and he names both of them. However, in the Gospel of Mark, this is his only reference to the Sadducees. We see them pop up in Acts 23. Um, where Paul highlights the major distinction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that was concerning their belief about the resurrection. That chapter tells us that they did not believe in the resurrection, and neither did they believe in angels. They believed, the Sadducees believed, that only the Torah, only the first five books, the books of Moses, were authoritative. And so they really didn't pay attention to the, the prophets and the Old Testament writings the Psalms and the wisdom literature, they were Torah men. They only cared about those first five books. They were priests, as we, as we have mentioned, but not all priests were Sadducees. Historians tell us that they were the upper class, they were aloof, rude to peers, argumentative, and severe in their judgment. Not the people you would probably go to to make best friends with. Mark gives us very little information, and as I've mentioned, this is his only reference to the Sadducees. However, he tells us the important fact that we need to know, and that is that they say there is no resurrection. That is why they are sad, you see. That's what I learned in, as a child. So these ruling priests come to Jesus and they pose a question to him that to us really sounds ridiculous. Now, it's, it's plausible that this could have happened, that what they describe and they put to Jesus could have actually happened, that there were actually seven brothers that, 
that, that um, were there and married the same woman one after the other and each died without children. However, it's very likely a hypothetical situation. So, but the background of the situation is what the Sadducees describe is from Deuteronomy 25. And they reference that, that Moses had, had told them, um, there he talks, they, they mention that in verse 19. And what is behind that is Deuteronomy chapter 25. And if you look that up in your Bibles, you don't have to look it up right now, but you might see the title or the heading over that group of verses, the law of leveret marriage. And leveret means, it's, I think it's the Latin, uh, for brother-in-law, okay, which makes sense because uh, verses 5 and 6 say, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man should not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. And then it goes on in the, in the uh, further verses, and it talks about if that brother chooses not to fulfill this role, what is to be done? And there's a process in which he is really shamed before the, the other people of the city. It's important that we understand that both for this text... But if you ever read the, the book of Ruth, make sure you read Deuteronomy 25 because it, it helps you understand what Boaz is doing and, the, and it really kind of opens up the beauty of that love story and of, the, of what he is doing in redeeming um, Ruth. But the reason for this under the law of Moses was to preserve the name of the husband who had died. Childlessness was a significant trial as it continues to be but in that day, it was even more than that. It was considered a curse. So if a man died without a son to carry on his name, God provided a way for his name to be continued. But the Sadducees were not asking Jesus for an explanation of the law of Moses. They thought they had that down pat. I think their intent was to embarrass Jesus. Their intent was to humiliate Jesus. They wanted to discredit him. They thought they had a credible argument against the resurrection. We know from the account of the raising of Lazarus in John 11, and then the events that follow in John 12, that the Jewish leaders were very agitated by the fact that many were believing in Christ because of the resurrection of Lazarus. And leaders even wanted to kill Lazarus as he was a constant reminder of Christ's power and authority over death. And he was, in their eyes, the cause of many coming to become followers of Christ. So it's possible that these men kind of had that in their minds when they were thinking about the resurrection. Jesus, as you know, had told Martha in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So here is this rabbi, Jesus, telling people that not only that there is a resurrection, but that he is the resurrection. The Sadducees likely did not fully comprehend what that meant, but did it stir them up? I think it did. It was likely many of the Sadducees that wanted to put Lazarus to death. So here they take an opportunity to try to trap Jesus, to humiliate him, to craft a situation based upon the law of Moses, which Jesus had said he came to fulfill the law. 
and use that law against him. And it's as though he's saying, what about this, Jesus? I can almost see the smug satisfaction on their faces after they put this out there to the Lord Jesus. And that brings us to our second point, the response of our Lord. It's interesting that the verses that record Christ's response, verses 24 to 27, are really bracketed with the fact that the Sadducees were wrong. Jesus is very clear about saying that they were wrong. As you recall from other interactions, Jesus would sometimes pose a question back to his questioners. And that was a way that he responded and answered them. But here he doesn't take that approach. He is very direct with them. He says, you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong. You are quite wrong. He says that they are wrong because they neither know the scriptures, know neither the scripture nor the power of God. What a stinging rebuke for these men who were priests, who were called to be intercessors for the people of God in between God, them and the Lord. But as sharp as Christ's rebuke was of them, it was true. He says, first of all, they do not know the scriptures. And then Jesus uses the scriptures, interestingly, even uses the first five books of the Bible to prove his point. And he calls their attention to Exodus 3 a passage that was very familiar to them, a passage they thought they knew. Jesus identifies it for them as the passage about the bush. The bush. Remember that in that day there was no chapter or verse division and, and he was referring to it by the content of the account. It was one of the most important passages in the mind of Jewish leaders because it was the passage in which God revealed himself to his servant Moses. And it was the passage in which he gave his covenant name where he said, I am that I am. When Moses said, who, who should I tell them has sent me? And the Lord says, I am has sent you. God there identified himself as the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, men who were long dead by the time of Moses. And the Sadducees, like you and me, have heard that phrase many times, but often, like the Sadducees, I fear we skim over passages and fail to appreciate the depth of them. Jesus is rebuking these men and reminding them that even though these men were dead, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God's promises were still true. God is the God, even today, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because the promises that he made to them are still true. And they live on, and they can, they're, the promises that God make, makes to them and to us are sure. And we know that even though in this life we may not see them fully fulfilled, we have the promise that he will keep his word. He is the God of the living Jesus accused these men. He rebuked them for their lack of knowledge of the scriptures. The Bible, as you know, is our only rule of faith and practice. It is how we learn to understand God and the world that he has created. It's how we explain the sin that we see evident in our own life and in the world around us. And it is how we learn the way of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. And it's how we discern truth from error. I ask you this evening, do you know God's word? I don't mean are you a professional Bible scholar. That's not what the church, 
The church does need that in certain people. But for most of us, we just need to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. We just need to hunger and thirst after God's word. We need to want to know the Lord of the Bible. We should want to know him better. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you teaching it to your children? In the words of J.C. Ryle, he says, the very best portion we can give them, our children, is a knowledge of the scriptures. They lacked the knowledge of the scriptures. And the other part of, their, of the Lord's rebuke to them was that they did not know the power of God. They acted as though there could be no resurrection, as though God was not powerful enough to make a resurrection happen. God can and will demonstrate his power over death in raising his children, even though they be long dead. And we shall be changed, the scripture says. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, 1 Corinthians 15 says. And we will be made in some way like the angels. Notice he does not say we will become angels. Too often society would, help, would, would want us to believe that those who have departed become angels. No, that's not what scripture says. But there are ways in which there are, we will be similar to angels. We don't know everything about the resurrected bodies, what they will be like. But we know that this perishable body that in which we live must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. We know that we will have a body in the resurrection. We will not be just disembodied spirits floating around in the clouds. The Sadducees were acting as though there could be no resurrection because they could not fathom an existence different from what they experienced on this earth. But this view underestimates the power of God. We will be changed, and the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection is truly a reality. And even though you and I have not experienced the resurrection, we know it's a reality because Christ has been raised. We heard that in the message this morning. I thanked Fred after the sermon. I said, thank you for setting up my sermon so well because he, he gave some, some facts that we need to keep in mind as we consider this text. It's a reality because Christ has been raised. If that seems foreign to you, read 1 Corinthians 15. I won't read all 58 verses of it to you tonight. But that's the case that Paul makes. He says, our resurrection is real because Christ was raised. And if Christ is not raised, what good is it? Our religion is worthless. But Christ has been raised. We know that for a fact and we can rest in it. He says that... Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. And when you think about this term of first fruits, and, and, and for a long time in my Christian life, I didn't really know what that meant. But, but all it means is it, it's, it's a picture of that first tomato plant or whatever that first harvest is that you, that you pick. There's a promise of much more because of that. And because of Christ's resurrection, we have a promise of our own resurrection. There's much more to come because the truth of Christ's resurrection and the reality of that resurrection should comfort us. It should give us hope. It should help us to persevere. As I thought about this message, I thought, okay, so what? So what about the resurrection? I'll tell you so what. This earth is not our home. 
What we do here does matter, and right now counts forever. But the world would have us live like this is our only existence. They would have us live like if you're lucky, you'll get 85 or 90 years. And then whatever you've done is the end. And if you've got more toys than the next guy, then maybe you win. But that's not the reality in the kingdom of God. That's not the reality that Martin Luther wrote about where he says, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And we, saints of God, are part of that kingdom. Our existence does not end when we depart from this earth. Our existence goes on. And what we do now matters forever. We need to remind ourselves of that. What we do here matters, but it is not ultimate. The reality of the resurrection, of the resurrection should comfort us, but it should also instruct us. And as our text tells us this, this evening, it should instruct us about marriage. This is particularly clear in this text. Jesus told the Sadducees that marriage is an earthly institution. Marriage is till death parts the husband and wife. But marriage is not an eternal institution or concept. I think that many struggle with this as they see marriage as the ultimate state or condition in which they wish to exist. The Apostle Paul confirms that in a, in a passage in Ephesians 5 that, that is very instructive about marriage on this earth. Where he tells husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I've used that to challenge men and women to, to function in the way that God has called them to. But then there's something that Paul says in the very, in the, I think it's the next to the last verse of Ephesians 5. Where he says, really, this is about Christ and the church. And so after this fabulous instruction that we need and we need to put into practice... He says, this is a picture of Christ and the church. Our earthly marriages as believers are to point to the eternal reality and love that Christ has for his church. As one author has said, yes, there will be marriage in heaven, one marriage, and that's between Christ and his bride, the church. There are, are a variety of purposes for marriage upon this earth, one of which is procreation. On this earth, death is a sober reality. We need babies to be born to carry our society forward and to continue to build the church. However, in heaven, all of God's ransomed saints will be called home. They will be gathered in and there will be no need for procreation. The earthly nature of our marriage should help us keep our marriages in perspective and help us to view marriage rightly. It is possible for your marriage to become an idol. That may seem strange to you because we should rightly seek to strengthen our marriages, to persevere in our marriages, to stay married, to have a marriage that is, that is functioning as scripture tells us to. But if you're more concerned with pleasing your spouse than you are about pleasing God, your marriage may be an idol. If you look to your spouse as your ultimate source of contentment and joy... Your marriage might be an idol. And marriage can be an idol to a single person too. If your life is consumed with finding a spouse, that's an indication of a problem. If you think you cannot be content or happy unless you are married, you should check your heart 
and ask for Christ to make you content in him and wait for his timing. You can be single and glorify God. You can, be, you can glorify God in any marital state. We need to know that heaven is the ultimate reality. Marriage is good, but the ultimate good is eternal life with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The reality of the resurrection instructs us about marriage. There's much more we could say about the resurrection, and, and um, I think that there's often many questions. Scripture is, tells us much. Scripture tells us what we need to know, but it doesn't always tell us everything that we think we might like to know. But we can rest in this, because anything that God doesn't fully explain is usually better than what we can imagine. And that's what the Apostle Paul said. We don't know everything about the resurrection, but we know the Lord of the resurrection. Jesus doesn't say here in Mark what he said in John, that he is the resurrection, but we know that he is. Jesus spoke with the authority that he did because he is the resurrection and the life. He spoke with authority about the resurrection because he is the I am. Jesus spoke with authority about the resurrection because he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The resurrection proves the power and faithfulness of our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. We know that the promises that God makes, he will keep, even if they are not fulfilled in this life, in this temporary life on earth. The reality of the resurrection clears us of the guilt of sin we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. His resurrection was a sign to the world of his vindication. And by virtue of our union with him, we too have been made right with a holy God. In the words of Gerhardus Voss, resurrection has annulled the sentence of condemnation. Our faith is not built on mere ideas or some obscure philosophical concept, it is grounded in the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the God-man. We have hope for a resurrected, eternal life because Jesus died and rose again. Christ is the Lord of the resurrection. He alone has authority over death. And we should submit to that authority. Death is the final enemy and Christ has overcome it, but it is only as you submit to him that you can have victory over your final enemy, death. I trust this passage has been an encouragement to you. Some, however, see it as problematic in that, that they wonder about marriage and, and what good is marriage. My grandparents were married in 1932 and their marriage lasted over seven decades until my grandfather's death in 2003. And some might think of a marriage relationship like that in light of this passage and think, well, what eternal value is that marriage, or yours or mine for that matter? But nothing could be farther from the truth. As I said, right now matters forever. Our marriages upon this earth glorify God by sanctifying us, by serving as a testimony to the goodness and faithfulness of God by giving us the blessing of companionship and friendship within marriage. 
by giving us a brother or sister in Christ who knows us intimately and points us to Christ. And by raising godly seed, covenant children through which God continues to build his church. And our relationships will continue in heaven. Not the marriage relationship, but our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. And while our relationships will be different in some ways... Some think, and I don't think it's unscriptural to say this, that, that perhaps in some ways they will be more intimate than what we recognize and can experience on this earth. Because we'll live in an environment that's free of sin, and we will be enjoying God's glory and his presence. There are many details about the resurrection that we may not know. But we know from this passage tonight that it's wrong to assume that our earthly existence will just continue in the same way as it is now. The Sadducees were quite wrong, as Jesus said, for not believing in the resurrection. We can rest in the hope of life eternal in our resurrected bodies forever with the Lord. And the irony of this passage and where it's situated in the story and, and where it comes to us is just days, as you know, just days before these very leaders will call for Christ's death. And it is through his death and resurrection that we have the hope of resurrection. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love them. We have no idea, but God often saves the best for last. As we close, I want to leave you with the words of our shorter catechism, question 38, which I trust is a comfort to you. That question asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? The answer is this. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God for all eternity. That's our hope as believers. Is that your hope tonight? Let us pray.